All right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Uh, if you're just visiting, welcome. Uh, and at the same time, we have been in a series, uh, Jesus is Greater. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews. This is actually our 18th week. Uh, and so, uh, hopefully, it won't be, we won't get too lost uh, in the weeds, but there's a lot that we've already covered. But there's been this shift in the book of Hebrews uh, where the author isn't just saying, hey, here's how Jesus is greater, here's how Jesus is greater, he's greater, he's greater, he's greater. There's this shift now to how does this actually affect me personally? And so that's going to be what we're going to be looking at. Uh, so just three more weeks of Hebrews. We're going to be uh, done here pretty soon, and then we'll be shifting gears into the summer. Um, and then just a, just a heads up, there is no AC in this building, uh, not least this building. Once you go out here, there is AC. Uh, and so in the summer, we tend to kind of shorten our services a little bit. Um, and all God's people, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh, we'll, we'll be uh, doing that. Again, it was, in, the, in the morning, it's not so bad. If those of you, you know, old timers, if you remember when we were meeting in the evenings, man, it was hot in here. It was really bad. Uh, we first started, and I remember my boss, Steve, he said, I've only got one rule when it comes to a dress code. You're just not allowed to wear shorts. And then he came and preached here, and he was like, okay, you can wear shorts. It was, it was just hot. It was, man, it was hot in here. So uh, we, have, we don't have that issue really in the morning. Um, a lot less bodies being in here throughout the day. So anyways, last week uh, we looked at a sermon entitled, Jesus is Greater Than You. We looked at Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 40. It's a very, very uh, long passage, and there's a lot there. Uh, what has been called the, the hall of faith, if you will, of looking at uh, all these individuals who have, for the, all, all throughout history, the author of Hebrews just walks us through how God has had individuals that have faith in him, that they are saved and made righteous by their faith and belief in the promises of God and his covenants that he makes with them. And so I looked at last week, because I think it's important as we get into this text of what is faith? And a lot of times people kind of have, this is just from Webster's Dictionary, but this is the second definition of it's a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion based on a spiritual apprehension rather than proof, that there's actually no, no proof in what I believe. This is, I just have faith in this thing and it's just something kind of arbitrary, uh, which is also what uh, atheist and author Richard Dawkins, um, who uh, really did a lot of his work to just disprove the existence of God, but he said this, faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence, faith is a belief in spite of, even because of, the lack of evidence. And, and he's not wrong if we have that second definition, but that's simply not true. We need to take the first definition, which is faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something, and in our context, that is God, that he has earned our confidence and our trust. And we get to see the individuals, these lives of men and women who have gone before us and who have had complete confidence, which gives us more confidence. And again, the author last week, looking at verse one of Hebrews 11, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hope, hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is my receipt. If I have the gift of faith, then I know God is real. And we can see this in Ephesians chapter two for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not from yourselves. This faith is a gift of God, not by works. You can't save yourselves by works so that no one can boast. And again, looking at this hall of faith, these individuals who 
have gone before us and there's a lot of names and we could spend a year looking at all those individuals and the history and the context of what, uh, what they put their faith in and where, where they're at and how they uh, receive this gift of faith and righteousness from God. And so again, ending these last couple verses from last week's passage and all of these, these individuals, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, right? They were, they were looking forward. They had belief in the promise that God was going to send a savior, was going to send a redeemer, but that hadn't happened yet since God had provided something better for us that we now get to look back at the cross. And we have so many other people that have gone before us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect, that we need Jesus. And so ironically on this Mother's Day, uh, the title of this sermon is God is Greater Than Your Dad. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 17. I'll have the scripture up on the screen. Uh, we read from the NIV, but uh, feel free to follow along if you'd like to in your own uh, app or Bible. Um, so I have, a, I have a question, though. Have you ever met someone famous? I'm kind of curious. Well, who's, who's met the most famous person? I, I've met several famous people in my life. Um, I know you're like, well, I know you, Brian. I'm like, I know, pretty, pretty, kind of a big deal. Um, but one of the, one of one kind of a crazy story is I met uh, Yao Ming once. Does anyone you know who Yao Ming is? I don't know if anyone was too young uh, to remember that. But he, what was he? Seven foot six, right? Just ridiculously tall, right? I'm I'm six two, uh, and to have someone be I mean almost a foot and a half taller than you is wild, right? Uh, I don't have to look up to somebody that, you know, that often, but I mean, it was up. I mean, just the, the size of this, this man. Um, and uh, I met him at SeaWorld uh, out in California on my senior trip. So I was a senior in high school and uh, we was, I was, you know, kind of starstruck, like, wow, not just an NBA player, but like the tallest NBA player. Uh, and it was good, right? Yeah, I was a very good basketball player. And so we got our pictures with them. And I, I looked for it last night. I couldn't find it. So you're like, yeah, right. You're, not, you're making this up. I know. I prove it. I, I tried. I did. I, I dug through my old pictures. I couldn't find it. Uh, but what was crazier, though, about that uh, was I went to a, like a show, the sea, seal or sea lion show, you know, where they clap and do all these different things. And I went to this show, and my entire class was there with me, and uh, they needed volunteers. And so my whole class was cheering at me. Well, Yao was sitting right behind me, right? His knees are like, you know, in my ears, you know, because he was just so big. But he was pointing at me. He didn't know me. I just had my picture taken with him. But, you know, he doesn't know my name. And, uh, but anyways, he's pointing at me. I get picked uh, to go up on stage. And uh, a lot of you know I went to an incredibly conservative uh, school growing up. And I had to dance with the seals. And I got in a lot of trouble for dancing. So Yao almost got me expelled from my school. So uh, I blame it on, blame it on Yao. Uh, anyways, I'm curious if you've met someone famous. I'd like to hear those stories. But um, there have been two times in my life when I've been preaching where I have quoted an individual from their book. And that individual was sitting in the auditorium. And that's very nerve-wracking. Right, it's, it, so there's, there's certain times we meet people and it changes our demeanor, right? When we meet someone, someone famous. Uh, and I, cause I can tell you the, the, the one author in particular, I met with him, I got coffee with him, was walking through his book, it was a, he was a scientist um, and, 
It was just the existence of God and, and evolution, just different things. And so I met with him and he goes, oh, well, I'll come to, I'll come to your church on Sunday. And I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> like what's this gonna be like? Uh, and it was kind of nerve wracking. I kind of held my punches back a little bit knowing that this, this guy was sitting there. Um, and so our, our demeanor kind of changes a little bit when we meet somebody important. And so as we look at this hall of faith, these really big names, I think it should impact us and our demeanor moving forward, that we get to look back at a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a, a great cloud of witnesses, and this sometimes have been, has been misread to think like there's like these, their ghosts or their spirits are there with us. You know, they, they surround us. No, they've gone before us. And we get to look at these men and women who have gone before us. And so let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, that makes us trip up. Let's get over this. Let's fight sin and let's do it together. Why? Again, they should be a little bit of a motivation. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Why? Because they've gone before us. We have the advantage of seeing where they have already run. Uh, I've been recently uh, watching a show called... Uh, Launch Control, it's a, it's a show, I don't even know what it's on, Prime or something, but it, it's, uh, it's about uh, rally racing. And I used to play a video game in college called Dirt 2, right? So you had Tanner Faust and you had uh, Travis Pastrana, if you remember Nitro Circus, for those of you who remember that. Anyways, it's just kind of cool uh, playing this video game and then I've just been recently watching it uh, in, in, you know, on, on TV, uh, these racers that do rally racing. So they're, they're in the dirt and they're flying. I mean, they're going 100 plus miles an hour on roads in between trees that are, it's wild what they do. But what's interesting is that it's actually uh, beneficial to not be the fastest in what they call um, a, a, a leg, okay? They do multiple legs a day of, of different tracks. They go one way and come back the next way. But it's actually a, a better to be in second place because you get to see the person who went in front of you. You get to see their tracks and where they went and how they turned and how fast they were going and if they slammed on the brakes, right? Or if they took a sharp turn and you see their car in the ditch, you know you gotta slow down, right? It was actually, it's actually beneficial to be in second place. And it's kind of the position we're in. That we, again, as they were looking forward to Jesus, we now get to look back, that we get to see individuals who ran the race before us. But again, this race isn't just marked out by mere mortals, which is good knowing that, they, hey, they did it, they did it, they weren't perfect, but Jesus was. And so we get to fix our eyes on Jesus. We've, this, this phrase has been used over and over throughout the book of Hebrews. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Turn your gaze on Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. This was one of those verses that I have memorized in, in the King James that says, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, which again, just goes back to that Ephesians passage that I read that he gives us, he's the author, he's the giver of faith and he perfects it, he finishes it. Now what does it say about Jesus? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of Jesus. We don't just have these others who finished well, we have Jesus and what we see about Jesus is he also suffered. He also endured hardship. He actually even absorbed and, and took on himself the wrath of God that we deserve. And he did this perfectly. And what's really interesting, what's I think just fascinating is the, this idea of God, Jesus being fully God and fully man. 
It's one of those things I teach a systematic theology class, and this is one of those uh, doctrines that is mind-blowing. Forget the Trinity, forget the virgin birth. They don't hold a candle to the fact that Jesus had to be fully God, fully man to atone for my sins. It's a fascinating doctrine. But again, the author of Hebrews, moving forward here, chapter 12, verse three, says this. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. So consider Jesus, look to Jesus who endured opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So don't just look at these individuals, this hall of faith, and and maybe even people that you know who have died and gone forward. Don't just look at them. It's good. They're good examples. But let's look to Jesus so that we won't grow weary. In the midst of oppression, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of discipline, as we're going to look at here in a minute, don't lose heart because Jesus didn't. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. I think there are so many times in the Bible as we read the, the, the gospels and the narrative and the story of Jesus that we automatically, when, we, when something happens, we put him in the God category. Oh, that didn't really, it wasn't really a struggle because he's God. And we forget that he was fully human. Uh, Angela and I have been watching a show called The, uh, the Chosen. Um, it's by a company called VidAngel. Uh, and it's been really good. If I highly recommend it, if, you, if you'd like to watch a show, it's just about the life of Jesus. But they really highlight his humanity. They show him dancing at a wedding party with his friends and uh, even teasing them about how bad they are at dancing, right? And someone's like, Jesus, can you heal his bad dancing? He's like, and he, he says, there's some things I, I can't even fix, right? There's just, it's just, he was, he, had, he was a human being. He told jokes, he laughed, he had fun with his friends and his family. There's this one scene, though, where he's trying to make a fire, right? And he's doing the whole stick thing, trying to make an ember. And I, and I said it out loud to my wife, like, you talk about temptation. Like, you invented fire, <laughs> right? To die in that moment just to be like, all right, I'm sick of the stick thing. <laughs> right? He endured temptation in ways that we can't even begin to imagine as being fully God and fully man. When we look at Matthew chapter 3, looking at verse 13, through chapter four, verse three, it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, this is his cousin, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove in a light, in a, in a light, in a, in a lighting on him. Is that what it says? In a lighting on him. Hmm, okay. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water and God the father looks and he says, this is my son whom I am well pleased with. And then Immediately, Jesus was led away by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You, you are, if you are God, right? And what is the devil's temptation here isn't just, to, just only to, to get him to eat some food because he's hungry, because he's human. 
but even the human doubt that starts to go into his mind, you just heard God say, this is my son. And Satan says, if you are the son of God, that this immense temptation that he bears, and again, the author of Hebrews says, have we resisted sin this way, even to the point of shedding blood? And he's referring specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Jesus knows he's about to be crucified and he's crying out in agony, knowing that he's going to suffer for the sins of the world. And he says, God, I don't want to do this. There's got to be some other way. That's his humanity speaking out. And yet he says, not my will, but yours be done. And there's so much anguish. It says that he sweat drops of blood. So again, look to Jesus and it says, consider him. Look to Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father, addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse seven, therefore, in light of this and who God is and how he loves Jesus and how Jesus loves us and how he too suffered, we endure hardships as discipline. We endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Right? I, it's, this, is a, this has been a difficult passage for me chewing on all week. I'm a dad, but I'm not the, the greatest dad. Right? I, I make mistakes. I, dis, I just chewed out my son the other day for lying to me and then finally found out he wasn't lying to me. Right? That's bad. And I don't do it well, but I tried my best because these are my legitimate kids. I love them. I've got neighbor kids that come over and play. I don't tell them what to do and what not to do. I try to make sure they don't get run over by a car. Don't, no, don't, don't run in the street, but is that my job? <laughs> Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I want to look at two wrong ways to read this passage. And actually this morning, I thought of a third one, but I didn't have time to update the PowerPoint. There's three wrong ways to read this passage. The first one is all suffering is from God. If we put ourselves in this passage and say, if there's any pain, if there's any suffering, if there's any difficulty, this is God saying, boom. As Paul talked about a couple weeks ago, this is God's cosmic hammer. To think all suffering is from God. It says at the beginning of verse seven, endure hardship as discipline. It doesn't say all hardship is discipline. So we endure hardship like Jesus did. At the cross set before him, he endured the shame. Jesus wasn't punished in the sense of, you did something wrong, therefore you're gonna suffer for it. 
So when we're going through a difficult season, difficult time, it could be a loss of a loved one, this could be a, a disease, this could be COVID, whatever it may be, this is not, oh, God is doing this to punish me, to punish us. I remember distinctly when my dad got cancer when I was in eighth grade, uh, immediately uh, after I heard the news, I was at the hospital, heard the news, and I immediately went into the bathroom and I started repenting of my sin because this was what I thought about my God, that if somebody's having a difficult time, it's because they sin. And I must have brought this on myself. No, I need to endure this and learn. What can I learn from watching my dad suffer and watching my dad suffer well even to the point of death? We get to learn a lesson from God, a loving father. And again, Jesus endured us. Jesus endured suffering and he was perfect. So we can't think that all suffering is from God. We live in a fallen, broken world. That's once sin entered the world, suffering entered the world, death entered the world. That's just part of life now. It's not always gonna be that way. Another wrong way to read this passage is if I suffer, if I don't suffer, then I must not be from God. Now, this passage talks about legitimate children and illegitimate children. And I think to some degree this may be true, but what do we mean by suffering? Man, my life is easy. I live in a house. I've got a family. I've got a job. So maybe I'm not actually a legitimate child. And so you might be looking at that and say, man, I feel like I'm, I'm okay. I'm like, I feel like life is good. Then I would go to God in prayer Right, but what am I trusting in? This is not about me and about you and about my suffering. It's all about what is my faith in? Who is my faith in? I think the third way that I was thinking about this morning was to read this in a self-righteous way. And that is if I see somebody suffering, like Job and his friends as we went through last summer right when COVID started, oh, you are going through a difficult season, you're going through a difficult time, you don't have enough faith, you're not righteous enough. You must repent of something. Uh, I remember my dad, when he was sick, our, our pastor told him that. Rod, what are you not repenting of? What, what, are you, what are you hiding? That's terrible. We could be like Jonah and think, oh, when I see somebody suffering, I want them to be punished the way that God, right? This is, they deserve this as if I don't. So then how do we read this passage? Well, as we keep reading in Hebrews, uh, getting to verse 12, it says, therefore, knowing that discipline is a good thing, that hardships are a good thing, that we can learn from this, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled or dislocated, but rather healed. What's happening here? The author of Hebrews is saying, when you're going through hardship and suffering, remain under it. Learn from it. Saying, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees, stay under it, make your paths level. Why? Because you can get dislocated. You try to, try to get out from underneath a difficult situation too fast. It can be more damaging than if you just would have stayed under. Now, this doesn't mean don't pray for a difficult thing or a season to be removed. This is what Jesus did. He said, Father, remove this cup, but answered and followed it through with, but your will be done. The Apostle Paul Remove this thorn of my flesh. But then Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient. So I just want to encourage you, don't be in such a rush to get out from suffering. That there are usually, in suffering is something that we can learn. 
And we get to become more like Jesus in seeing his suffering. We see this very clearly in Mark chapter six, a passage I've brought up many times, but it says this. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, uh, while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. So I don't know if he could, he could see them, right? He's on the shore and he can see this boat on the lake. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. <laughs> These are fishermen, a lot of them. They're struggling, they're working so hard and they're not, not going anywhere. He says, for the wind was against them and about the fourth watch uh, of the night, he came to them walking in the sea. In other words, it had been all night. That his disciples were rowing all night. It's now dawn and Jesus has seen them struggle. And he meant to pass by them. <laughs> he was just gonna leave them. He was just gonna walk by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out, for they all thought that uh, it was a ghost. Excuse me, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. That's a whole other conversation and story. But what's the point? Why do I bring this passage up? Jesus is on the shore and he's watching his friends suffer. They're on this boat. They're gotta be exhausted. They're working. Maybe they're afraid of capsizing and drowning, whatever. Jesus is watching them endure hardship. And all he, he could have been there on the shore and been like, okay, win, that's enough. But he doesn't. He wants his disciples to learn something to not be in such a hurry to get out from underneath that suffering and the difficult task, but look to Jesus. So don't be in such a rush to get satisfaction. The author of Hebrews here continues. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Again, righteousness, faith that we have to have in Christ. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, for who for a single meal sold as an inheritance rights as the oldest son, and afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing with tears and could not change what had been done. Don't be in such a rush to get satisfaction. We have this idea of sexual immorality or godless like Esau, what happens? Esau's hungry. He's the firstborn. He's going to get all the inheritance from his father, Jacob. But what does he do? He's hungry and he finds his brother. And he says, uh, or excuse me, Esau and Jacob is, uh, uh, who am I missing here? Abraham, Isaac. His father, Isaac, sorry. He, go, he would inherit everything from his father, Isaac, but he doesn't. He's hungry one day and his brother, Jacob, is making a pot of stew. And he says, hey, I'll give you my birthright if you just give me some food. And there's this idea of an affair, or some sexual immorality, and this idea of, of just, I just want to be satisfied now. Here, let's give it to me now. I want it. And to not look at the long run, wanting something quick and easy to satisfy the flesh. And we don't look, we don't consider Jesus, who endured the cross, despising 
It's shame. So don't be in such a rush to get satisfaction. Let's be like these individuals in the hall of faith. The author of Hebrews says they were tortured. They suffered. Some were even torn in two. They had faith because they considered the long game. They considered Jesus the author and finisher of their faith. And again, don't just be like those individuals, but be like Jesus. We don't have to like suffering. Jesus didn't. Nobody likes suffering, right? So I don't, I don't want you to hear that. Like, oh, I'm going through a hard time. Well, yay, right, I get to be like Jesus. No, that's, that's a masochist. That's bad. Don't be like that. He endured the cross. And so again, looking back at verse two, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was not joyful. It was what came after the cross, knowing that he was gonna provide salvation for souls, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in gospel application, do you view God as the cosmic hammer or do you view God as a loving father? Some of us had good fathers, some of us didn't. Some of us have good fathers, some of us don't. But we have a God who loves us more than we can comprehend. Who poured out his wrath on Jesus so that we don't have to. That our older brother, Jesus, takes my place. He bears the shame. He bears the wrath. And that is my motivation. I get to see Jesus who went before me. And secondly, are you in too much of a hurry to get out of a difficult situation? Have we thought, what can I learn from this, from COVID-19? Is there something that I, I need to act like or is there something I need to repent of in my own heart? Is there some God that I have or some idol in my life that has been taken away from me, my freedom, my rights, uh, my, my ability to just do what I want to do? And, uh, what can we learn from hardship in difficult situations? We're gonna to move to a time of communion, something that we do here every week at uh, Lower Town. And all I would ask that you're a follower of Jesus. You don't need to uh, uh, be a member of this church or any church. Uh, and so we do have little, um, you know, cleaned uh, individual wrapped thing out in the uh, lobby of uh, the juice and the bread. And so if you didn't get one, feel free to, to grab one of those while the music is playing. But all I'd ask is that you're a follower of Jesus that you would say, yes, I put my faith in Jesus. I get to look back and I get to consider him who lived a life that I couldn't live, resisted temptation in ways that I could never begin to comprehend and imagine that he suffered on my behalf. During that, I, I asked Andrew, he picked out this song, but I asked him to play this first. And it's a song called Blessed Be Your Name. It's a song we sing quite often around here at Hope and uh, it's an old hymn. Blessed be your name. But if you just listen to the lyrics, I'm not going to read them, but as, as they're singing, as Andrew's singing, as their guys are playing, the author uses these lyrics that blessed be your name when I'm blessed in good times, when I'm not suffering. I need to bless you. And when I'm in a difficult situation, when I'm in enduring suffering and hardship, blessed be your name. I think that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to get through to us that follow Jesus, that want to look forward to seeing Jesus face to face 
So as we partake of these elements, again, the bread that represents his body that was broken for me, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for me to pay for my sins, he endured that cross so we could have freedom, so we could be set free from the law and from sin. So you bow your heads and pray with me as we get ready for communion. Father, I thank you. I thank you even as this passage says, I thank you for difficulties and hardships. I thank you that you allow certain things to come into my life. As a good, loving father, that I learn things from you. Not always perfectly, but you're teaching me as a father would his own child to be molded more into the image of Jesus, to be like him, to fix our eyes on him, the one who endured the cross for my sake. So God, I pray now as we partake of these elements that you would be honored, that you would receive joy as we remember what it is that Jesus did for us on that day. But that he didn't stay in the grave, he didn't stay there, that he rose from the dead, and now even as the author says, he is seated, seated at the right hand of God in power and authority. So God, we pray for that day, for him to come back, for him to make all things new. But God, until then, I pray that we would sing his praises. And so as we take these elements, as we sing these songs, as we meditate on your word, as we confess sins, that you would receive the honor and glory that is due your name. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.